If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hi, my name is Nick. I'm Brandon. We are the hosts of the Tennis Podcast, where every week we cover a different top tennis list. We cover lists such as the highest grossing films of all time, the best selling musicians of all time, the the sexiest mogwais, the richest leprechauns, the all this and more we cover on the Tennis Podcast. I had more. You can find us on all podcast players, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. All you got to do is search for 10ISH podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TennisPod. And Brandon, what will we do if the listeners don't check out our podcast? We'll cut your fucking head off. Don't make us cut your fucking head off. Listen to the Tennis Podcast. Bye. folks welcome back to la not so confidential i'm dr scott and i'm here with hi it's dr shiloh welcome back everybody uh it has not been too long since we released our last episode which Woo-hoo! is kind of cool Woo-hoo! <laughs> i am here after an eight hour day of long hard work and you just laid around all day i did lay around all day but i should say that the first part of the day after i was immaculately groomed and ready to go to work of course i lifted my damn like what 20 ounce water bottle to head outside the apartment and my back spasmed and i have had the day off uh and it was not fun yeah that's a text i got first thing in the morning i'm not sure about recording because i don't think i'm coming to work today i know it's awful. but we had to because i'm gonna be out of town for national police week i'm going to washington dc um in a couple of weeks and we wanted to get something to put out we're gonna stay on schedule that is right yeah so so uh this week as you've probably already seen from the little download indicator and the title of our episode is wrongly accused parents and there's there's a little bit of information I want to give you as to how we came up with the idea for this particular show, but it's also not going to focus just on these examples that we're going to discuss about failures in the system. What we're going to talk about also is something that's really near and dear to my heart or infuriating, I guess, is the idea of how individuals in the courtroom, the defendants, how often they are judged on their emotional presentation or a term we use in, in the psych world called affect, not effect, but affect. And we'll loop around to that later. And the reason I got here was, you know, as uh, Shiloh and I look at different subjects and we're texting back and forth with each other 
each and every day, all day, like, hey, what about this? What about this? I told her, I'm going to dive into the disappearance of Madeline McCann, which is the Netflix documentary, another one that is infinitely watchable and fascinating because like the Amanda Knox story, it was one where, especially because it was out of the country, and also the the accused were, were not Americans. It was a British couple, and it was a big story and then it disappeared and then it kind of came back and it was back and forth until it sort of is yeah, not really another one of those that you're like, whatever happened? To that? What's going on with that? Yeah. So this is one of those where you find out what went on with it. And it's pretty unbelievable. The result. Um, well, and- I think the big difference is, so you find out what went on with the investigation, but you don't have any closure to the actual kidnapping. No, not at all. Awful. I mean, Madeline is, is still missing. Yeah. Uh, there is no real evidence that that shows a direct line, although there are some pretty strong indicators of what happened, which are really disturbing. Yeah. But the idea that her parents were, were pilloried pretty badly uh, in that Portuguese uh, criminal system mm-hmm. is pretty rough. Yeah. Um, and once again, criticized for their emotional presentation or what was considered to be a lack of emotion. So right. we're going to talk a little bit about um, sort of cultural aspects, how different cultures, and we're not talking about just racial or ethnic identities or country of origin. You know, within the U.S., we have an absolutely wide range of cultural influences depending on where you live and what's appropriate. You know, I'm Scotch-Irish. I we're not supposed to express emotions. You've got two emotions, happy and happier. <laughs> That's it. Think- well, I, I feel like this also has echoes of our, um, our Columbine episodes when we talked about stress disorders and how do people react after trauma? Exactly. And well, I mean, if your child is missing or murdered, that's a trauma. So it it kind of falls under the same umbrella, but this, this feels like a nice flow from those two subjects that we were talking about previously. And one of the things we'll get into also is that accused people that are defendants in procedures like this, they're damned if they do and they damned if they don't. If they don't show any emotion, then everyone is saying, especially like the Nancy Graces of the world and the right. pundits are like, right. they're a stone cold sociopath. They're a stone cold killer. That's, I'm sorry. I did not prepare a good um, Nancy <laughs> Can you work Grace. On that? I'll work on it for next episode. But, and then if they do show something, if they show a tear or they, they break down, then that becomes question too of like, oh, crocodile tears. and Or they're showing remorse. They're guilty. They did it because they're crying. Exactly. So they're in just, people are interpreting. About just the incredible stress of going through a trial. Exactly. And it's not only the the pundits on the news channels, it's, it's attorneys will make comments during the procedure and most disturbing, disturbing to me are the judges that will make Mm, these comments. Right. And as if they have some magical insight into the psychological processes, which, you know, I used to think,
before I became involved in this kind of work so heavily, you know, you really trust the system and you hope that everybody in it is of the highest caliber and the highest ethics and morals and insight. And right. sadly, that's just not the way it and is. And when a judge is pointing it out, especially if they're making a ruling of some sort, you start to think, so the way that I'm acting right now is influencing possibly my sentence? My life? Yeah. Everything's online, yeah. and that, and then the meta narrative, and especially in the cases we're going to be talking about wrongly accused parents. There's the issue of their child is dead, or their children have died, or someone has died. They've already suffered an enormous loss, and now they're getting questioned and questioned and questioned. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to start off with a very historical famous case to talk about where um, I didn't actually even know that affect came into play until we started diving into this. But I thought we would start um, early on with something that somebody is or everyone is familiar with, and that's the Charles Lindbergh kidnapping. So just a quick rundown. Charles Lindbergh, of course, was the first person to make a transatlantic flight solo, nonstop. And overnight, he was the biggest celebrity in the world because of this. Celebrity probably that is pretty untouched by anybody even today just because... It, you know, we have so many celebrities now, but here was one that did something that was global in um, in this time in 1927, and so it, and he, heroic, right? I mean, absolutely. the idea the idea that you could get into the this relatively new technology of a plane and travel the world, like cross the ocean. Right. It was unheard of. It's I mean, it was miraculous. So, of course, he became an enormous celebrity. Yes. Yes. I think um, one of the quotes I heard was people talked more about how he basically walked on water rather than flew over water. Oh, <laughs> like, interesting. That's how big of a celebrity yeah. he was. Um, but he and his wife lived in Hopewell, New Jersey. Um, they had a home there. They had, I think, a couple of homes. And in 1932, they were living there with um, their child, who was Charles Lindbergh Jr. He was 20 months old at the time. And the family was home. Everyone was basically still up and awake. Um, about 8 o'clock, the nanny puts the baby down in the crib and then goes back to check on him at about 10 p.m. And the baby's gone. So... I mean, you can imagine as soon as the police were called, and back then we know in the 30s and 40s, media was there before cops were at scenes. And you're talking about the biggest celebrity in the world. This was a circus. Um, even though it's in the middle, not middle of the night, but, you know, late into the night, tons of people descended on this house um, to where they couldn't tell which tire tracks were which, which footprints were which. There were tons of fingerprints everywhere. Um, just a botched scene because of that. And it just seemed crazy. Like, who has the balls to put a ladder against this home, take a baby, slap a, non a ransom letter down, and take off into the night with this kid? And uh, it just seemed kind of, kind of crazy and far-fetched, and it even got crazier after that. But immediately, Charles Lindbergh kind of took control of the situation. He didn't have a lot of faith in the local police. So he called the local police. He also called the state police, but basically he said, you're not touching fingerprints. 
hang on, I want to see who does all of that, was telling people what to do, what not to do, where they could go in the house, where they couldn't go in the house. So that presentation seemed odd. He was also very stoic. Um, In the days following this, the story just gets weirder and weirder, and I'm not going to go through every detail, but eventually... um, the kidnappers through the newspaper started contacting Charles Lindbergh through messages. They went back and forth in a little bit. Then this third party person, Dr. Condon says, I will communicate with the kidnappers for you. And so they really pushed the police out a lot. And Charles Lindbergh was kind of heading this investigation on his own in a way. Um, but because this was covered by the media so much, there were reports of his wife, Anne, not being emotional enough. She was also very stoic in person. Um, and then it, after these these secret meetings in cemeteries with the, the kidnapper and money finally being exchanged and a series of ransom notes, almost like a scavenger hunt, like you'll find the, uh, the location to the baby under this stone somewhere else. Wow. Um, it, it was a big goose chase and the kidnappers were gone in the wind with a bunch of gold certificates is what they ended up getting their hands on thousands of dollars of in gold certificates at the time but um a trucker ends up finding the the corpse of the baby off the side of the road buried in a very shallow grave about two months after the kidnapping mm. so uh, and eventually um well so uh, there start to be conspiracies spun up that this was a a cruel trick that Charles Lindbergh was playing because he had like a weird sense of humor and that it went wrong, that it was um, like a publicity stunt, maybe a publicity stunt. But then they also said like, you know, he had. Uh, fed some people some poison as a joke before and that they all got terribly sick and had to go to the hospital. There was even a report that he had previously like hid the baby somewhere and said that there was a kidnapping. So there's like some weird quirks to this that just seems super unbelievable. So I, I think naturally with that, people started turning like, is this did they do it? There was also this rumor that the child was disabled, and so they were going to sneak the child out to be taken to Germany to be raised, and so it wouldn't sort of taint his reputation. All kinds of crazy stuff. Right. All kinds of conspiracies. But a lot of it stemmed from the immediate aftermath of them being very stoic people, not comforting each other in public. Um, but later, a lot of Anne's published journals really showed the depth of their grief, or her grief at least. Um, and, you know, a lot of her, her grief and crying took place in private. You know, she wasn't doing that in front of the camera. She's the wife of this very well-known person. And for him, I mean, he's a pilot. He's, he's, he's used to being in control when there's a crisis. That actually doesn't surprise me that he kind of maybe, you know, thought he knew better than anyone else and that he was going to take. And he might very well have. I mean, in the thirties, any kind of forensics was really just in its nascent stages. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of that, being said, um, eventually somebody used one of those gold certificates and, um, the person at the bank took down the license plate number and it came back to a German immigrant who had the rest, a good portion of it stashed back in his garage. The, um, the wooden slats made to make that were used to make the ladder 
were matched to some wooden slats in his attic. It, it, there's probably other people involved too. I don't think it was a one-man job necessarily, but there's some pretty hard physical evidence. I'm also, I'm sorry, I did not know that aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. And this is how much of a weirdo I am. The guy had to make his own ladder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, like it was this a, is something it, we don't really, like, because hmm, now if he had, like, because we watch all the shows, right? If he had bought a ladder, right. if he purchased a ladder, it would have been at Lowe's or Home Depot and he would have been on camera have to track. wearing, like, a, a cap <laughs> or a hoodie, right? Totally, because that's what everyone wears. Um, but no, they matched the wood grain. They matched the type of wood. They matched um, the nail hole. Wow. A, a lot of, you know, sort of forensic work. Um, the letter, a bunch of um, FBI uh, handwriting experts linked the letter to him, as well as the, the misspelling, some of the forensic linguistics, if you will. Um, you know, were some terms that were spelled as if someone was speaking with a German accent. Oh, wow. So there, there's a lot. Um, but, you know, he claimed his innocence till he was put to death. Um, but it's a really early case of the media frenzy and kind of turning on the parents and spinning these wild tales. I mean, I think it, it, it was definitely a wild situation with just all the ransom notes. And- True. And, you know, the, the we talked about, and I think one of our recent episodes about Occam's razor and the idea that looking at the simplest line of facts in any situation is going to lead to the most likely outcome. Right. And unfortunately statistics show that in most of these cases, it is the parents. Oh, sure. I mean, we see many of those cases. Sure. So we are kind of at a, an uneasy balance between these two competing paradigms where on one hand people are criticized inappropriately and 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 wrongly accused and pilloried and convicted and sometimes sometimes overturned the convictions which is great and then other times you know especially here in southern california there's been some absolute brutal child deaths and you see the parents in the courtroom and you know how how can you help but look at them and think okay you're a monster right but right yeah yeah no this this one had everything it had celebrity sensationalism um this missing child but then these parents that weren't behaving the way that they should behave whoever deemed that you know to be a thing but um it it, you know i don't know if we're going to attempt to really go into like where that comes from the from the outside in of putting that pressure on people and how they should act a certain way when they're experiencing a trauma. Um, but I don't know, maybe it's just, we put our ourselves in their shoes and say, well, how would I act? And I'd be hysterical. Me, I'd be crazy. You know, you I don't, don't know. know. I don't you, know. And you might be, I think that's another thing is sort of this idea of a progression of emotional experience and an evolution. Think about these trials that go on and on and on and people are expecting that there's going to be the same level of emotional expression or the same range of emotional expression in the, uh, the, the alleged, uh, perpetrators when, Hey, after nine months of a trial or even eight weeks, they're exhausted. You're in these court. That's one of the things when I see these pictures of, 
you know, there'll be a, a terrible picture of someone that's that's posted from a courtroom, and maybe they're they've got a smile on their face or a smirk. Well, that smirk might have been a micro expression that was halfway through another expression, and yet here you've taken this one singular moment frozen in time, and you're extrapolating an entire narrative right. from that one photo or that one still picture. Sure, sure. Would you like to talk about some? cases yeah and then we'll circle so, back to well maybe uh, maybe i should should i talk about maybe i should talk about the, the psychological sure. underpinnings first so sure. um when shiloh and i are doing evaluations or if we're say we're writing up a report on anyone that we're encountering that is our client whether i'm encountering someone in the community if shiloh is working with someone in the community in her private work or as a law enforcement uh psych. Mm -hmm. What we do is we're very careful to note the presentation of the individual that we are evaluating. And what we look for, one of the many things we look for is what's called affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, not effect, but affect. So it's different from how will my actions affect this situation? We're talking about emotional and physical presentation. So affect is, uh, it's the outward expression of the internal experience of feeling of emotions, feelings and emotions. And those things can be radically different. An individual can be feeling a very strong emotion or a very mild emotion and have a completely counterintuitive or opposite outward expression. So affect can be tone of voice. It can be a frown, a laugh, a smirk, a tear, a smile, uh, a furrowed forehead, a scrunched nose, uh, lifted eyebrows, or even a gaze. You and I have lifted eyebrows all we, the time. We do. I And I try and raise <laughs> one all the time to let people know. That's my, my nonverbal communication at work is when I arch my Mine eyebrow. Mine is Botox at work. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about that too. That ties in. Actually, okay, that ties in later. That. So really, it's any facial expression or body movement that indicates this emotional state. So affect is what people use in communication with each other to interpret the way another person feels about something. And actually, I'll just stick it in now. That's one of the reasons that overuse of Botox and overuse of plastic surgery among men and women uh, is actually having long-term psychological impact on not only the individual that has that severe level of use of the substance, but also as parents. I mean, I've touched on it before, but a child grows up learning how to interact with the world around them from an emotional context, how to regulate their own emotions by looking at how their parents react to emotional uh, experiences. So if you have a mom who's spending a lot of time with her kids and her face is frozen, the child is not going to develop the same level and acuity of mirror neurons. Now you're nowhere in that. I Your know, but moves. that's just blowing my mind. These poor kids walking around with like frozen faces around them. Yeah, yeah, like because because mommy's so, a Stepford wife. But like, wow. look, and the other side of it too. The, there's other studies coming out now that too much free, freezing of the face has an impact on your own expression of emotions because there is 
communication within the various systems of our mind and our body so that you crack a smile all those muscles are recognized in their physiological movement sends a message to the brain and then the brain sends the message to the face so what we're talking about is there's a possible interruption in doing that <laughs> i digress i'm going to get back wait, on wait. To I, but I, I swear the first time i had botox i was like oh my god are my client my clients going to know that i'm showing concerned face right now or <laughs> well, are my clients going to know it was like micro expression well, the other way around yeah but i was at my shrinks who drink night uh-huh. a few months ago with a, a, an amazing, amazing and very successful therapist here in town. And she looks great. Yeah. But she's had a lot of Botox. Yeah. And we talked frankly about it. I was like, well, how do you how do you manage that? And she said, I have to use tilting of the face and, and of head. face oh. angles wow. because my eyebrows don't move the way oh. they used to. Very odd. I mean, but what an odd conversation. To it be is having. an odd conversation, but it also, you know, but I will say that, you know, in my experience of hanging out with her and having this conversation and seeing her react to humor and things that we were talking about, I didn't actually notice it. I didn't really notice it. Whereas there are some celebrities who shall go unnamed sure. that are just, you know, they're frozen. The ability to display emotion through all these various facial expressions is an indicator of healthy social skills and mental health. So, you know, so basically it's when someone's walking in and there we ask how have things been going since last time I saw you and they say oh great that's the verbal indication but we're taking in everything right so when and I'm sometimes doing, it's not matching great exactly so and, and one of the standard lines as I'm dictating after uh, an evaluation is a uh, client presents with anxious and irritable mood with incongruent affect. So if the person is just flat and monotone and not giving anything, but everything else is indicating that their internal emotional state is anger or irritability or sadness or any of the range of emotions or happy emotions, I have to note that those are incongruent. It doesn't mean that they're not feeling them, but that incongruence could be indicative of something else that needs to be noted later on. Right. So once again, just don't make any judgments about it. So a person can have a a broad affect, which is generally noted as being pretty healthy. Broad means there's a spectrum of emotions. Once again, that's generally accepted as being healthy, but we got to be really careful because we have a lot of multicultural uh, influences in our country. And not only if you're like second, third, fourth, fifth generation of immigrants from a collectivist culture that really doesn't tend to value expression of emotion. In fact, it could be seen as gauche or absurd or insulting. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to make room for that and you have to make, I'm from the South and there's a lot of Scotch Irish in the South and it's, you know, you, if someone dies, you go to the funeral and then, all right, Done. We're done. Move on. Yep. Which is also not particularly healthy because it doesn't make room for grief, which you're going to talk about right. in a second. Right. So 
Uh, constricted affect is another, uh, we have five of these actually. The broad affect, we have constricted, which means a limited range of affect uh, that a person demonstrates. So like if someone was speaking about something that they're really excited about, they could uh, not outwardly smile or become wide-eyed, which is what we usually uh, see when someone's excited. Blunted is when someone has this restricted or limited expression of emotion, and it becomes more severe when their expression of emotion is even more absent. So if you, an example, when someone gets news that there's a death in the family has just occurred and their reaction is just sort of this monotone, flat uh, voice, or it looks like they don't care, like mm-hmm. they're apathetic. Mm-hmm. So flat affect is an even uh, more severe version of that. And a flat affect is what we would see. Usually flat affect would indicate that there's sort of a significant level of mental or emotional impairment. And when I talk about somebody with like psychosis or schizophrenia, one of the general hallmarks of that is a generally flat affect. So you're just seeing someone that is expressing no emotion. But believe me, I can tell you internally, they are experiencing a great deal of emotion as well as probably uh, what we call internal stimulation, like auditory, visual, tactile hallucinations. Yeah. Be the complete opposite going on on the right. inside. And then, of course, the last one is the one that would be the most noticeable, which is labile affect. And that's just really noticeably significant swings in emotional states like laughing, crying, uh, joking, calm, all within a short period. And that's another indicator of generally like a manic state or somebody who's under the influence Mm -hmm. of substances Mm -hmm. or me when I passed my final (laughs) exam from the board of psychology, I was like all over the place. I was crying in my car. I was singing Katy Perry. Oh yeah. Anyway, Katy Perry all the way to Palm Springs, all the way to Palm Springs with two bottles of champagne. Oh, that was a good day. But you were, you know what though? So that was what I was going to talk about. Just sort of the, the basic states. You were going to talk about grief, right? Did you want to circle yeah, back around to that? Sure. Cause I love that author that you chose. So, um, David Kessler is amazing. He is world renowned expert on grief and loss. And he worked really closely with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, yeah. um, authored a couple of books with her. Um, and what's that one we love? The one that you still have that you haven't given me back? Oh, shit. Did I, I probably borrow, let somebody else borrow it. Um, the one about... Um, I'll get you another copy. I'm like end-of-life experiences? It's end-of-life experiences. Something which I mean, he... Oh, it's so good. Yeah, you gave me that right after my mom passed. Yeah. And it was amazing because he... So many... There were really common experiences. Yes. Of, no, it's so neat. Yeah. He, he's great. So he, um, he's actually a reserve specialist with the department that I work for because he will come and do trainings for us wow. on grief and loss. Um, and he's just, he's so, so lovely. Um, and just so wonderful. So I actually, he was doing a class last week in a school that I was helping put on and man, it was great timing. I was just like taking notes like crazy. And the cop next to me is like, why are you taking notes? We're like running this school this week. You're not a student. I'm like, oh no, I need this for an upcoming episode. (laughs) Hang on. Um, But he was talking about this concept of practical grievers. And I don't know, this didn't resonate with me the first time I saw him talk and do this. But he said that practical grievers are practical in every aspect of their life. So if 
um, you know, their decision making or they're interacting with family, they are the practical one. He said, basically, he said, it seems like these people are from another planet. Um, they will see things like, oh, yeah, this terrible thing just happened. So, okay. Just move on. <laughs> um, when someone dies, he gave the example of they might be the person that's like, oh, why aren't I, how come I'm not crying? Well, I could cry, but it wouldn't bring them back. Like, and they sound like such assholes. And it's like, that's just how they go about life. That's the way they process those it's emotions. It's very logical. It's not exactly. And it, just, but it doesn't mean that they're not experiencing their own own form of grief in their own way. Absolutely. Um, and there are also people that probably aren't seeking out therapy. They're probably not seeking out other people to help and comfort them. They're just practical. Like people die and okay, we cry and grandma's gone, but okay. Like what, what next? Did you see that first John Mulaney comedy special on Netflix? I don't know if it was the first one. The, I know I saw one of them. His very first one. Sure. He's got three out now that are, if you, if you don't know John Mulaney, folks, you should know John Mulaney. Former Saturday Night Live writer, uh, now stand-up, and he, he writes a lot of things. I think he was the guy. He and Seth... Um, Myers. Seth Myers uh, developed... The character of Stefan oh, that was God. played by Bill Hader on Saturday, Saturday Night Live. But John Mulaney's from Chicago area, and he just has this amazing sensibility. But he's, obviously, well, with a name like Mulaney, obviously it's Irish. But one of the things he says in his stand-up is that I'm Irish, and you know how we deal with emotion and grief is we take all that emotion that you have inside and you shove it down and you keep pushing it down and it push it down, down, down. And one day you die and it's all <laughs> over. Yep. And I thought, I remember hearing that and going, Oh man, that is, that is so much the paradigm for mm. the Southern U S for people that are of that background. Yeah. 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 But this is more a, a pervasive personality characteristic with the practical grievers. I mean, this, this is, a, this is just how they go about life. It's not necessarily unhealthy. They're just no. seeing it in a way that's like, okay, like there's a little blip and then we move on. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, t- to me, I think, okay, I bet you Charles Lindbergh was probably a pretty practical person, at least probably pretty type A and, you know, to be a pilot and be able well, to do something amazing like this. A, yeah. I mean, that's a great example because he's a pilot in a time where no one really knows if that's going to happen. If, is it going to work or is he just going right. to die? Is he going to just, just disappear in the ocean? And for him to have the confidence of like, no, these gadgets on this thing work and I have confidence in that and I can do this. Let's yeah. do it. You know, um, there are just certain kind of personalities that are drawn to certain types of careers. Um, and I'll I'll mention more about that when we get to Madeline McCann, but, um, yeah, so that's practical grievers. There are just people who grieve that way. Right. Thank you, David Kessler for the info. Yes. If I cried every day, it wouldn't bring them back. I think that's an interesting yeah. Quote. It's sort of a real practical is the only word you can use. Right. It's very practical. Right. So circling around to here we are with Madeline McCann. Disappearance of Madeline McCann took place in Portugal in 2007. Portugal is a coastal country. 
uh, is also known for tons of resorts. Its economy, I think, I know Portugal because they make great wine. Oh. <laughs> they have a huge cattle <laughs> industry. Right. Um, very European with Spanish influence, with Italian influence, uh, French influence. It's, um, I think it's completely underrated when it comes to vacation. It's actually quite beautiful. Wonderful. So this family, uh, husband and wife who are both doctors, right? He's a surgeon. She, is she an anesthesiologist? I think she's an anesthesiologist. Talk about the pressure of being an anesthesiologist, like working under pressure. Right. And they're Welsh. Yes. Right, and so yes. Welsh people are known to be. I mean, the, sort of the take on UK typologies. You know, uh, Irish versus Welsh versus Scottish versus British. I mean, they're all part of the the same. Mm-hmm. But they have their the stereotype is that they are like hard scrabble, salt of the earth, non reactive people. Sure, sure. So. So. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, so they're in this this beach town, resort town with their three kids. So they have Madeline and then they have um a twin boy and girl. Twins, right? Yes. Yeah. Um and they're there with a bunch of friends and they have rented out a bunch of apartments like I don't know, four or five couples and their kids all around the same ages. So it um, looks like a whole set of condos kind yeah. of all stacked up a hillside. Right, right. And yeah, all up a hillside, but then there's this, these beautiful beaches. And apparently while they were on vacation, just about every evening, what they would do is they went down and they, for the week or however long they were supposed to be there, they went to the restaurant that's at the resort and they reserved a table for the party for the adults for the entire week, just blocked out the week. Can we have this table? And (coughs) excuse me, what they would do is everyone would put their kids to bed and then they would go down to dinner at like eight o'clock and every 20 minutes, one of the parents would go up and check on the kids and these apartments, if you can think of it as the, the apartments are on one side and then there's the pool area right outside of the apartments and then the restaurants on the other side of the pool. So yeah, in a way there's like direct line of sight to the patio or some windows of the apartments. But man, as soon as I heard that, that made me super uncomfortable. Well, I, I was really uncomfortable with it too. Oh and I my think God. I have to look at it, you know, through our 21st century modern Southern California, both of us working with sexually violent predators <sighs> yeah, and with law enforcement. And I, I have to try and separate that because I got squeevy too. I mean, I thought, I don't care how close you are. I mean, I, I mean, the only thing that to me really, and I'm not a parent, but I would think uh, the only thing I would be comfortable with is uh, sitting out on the balcony if you've got kids that are sleeping. But that's just me because the other side of it is that they explain, hey, we set this up and there was a reason they had a crash and the crash was sort of what we would call like the night babysitter. They like, because it's a resort, it's a resort town called uh, Playa de Luge mm-hmm. and or Praia Deluge, and this particular condo apartment setup had this babysitting service. Right. And they decided not to use it 
because they were uncomfortable with one aspect of it. And I can't remember exactly what that was, but I think it was like a different babysitter every day or something like that. That was it. It was something that was inconsistent yeah. about it. But the setup was that we've got 14, I think was it 14 or 16? It was several different couples. They're all around a big table and every 20 minutes, one of them gets up, right. trudges up the hill, which is I think a seven to nine minute walk right. and does the rounds through the apartment. Yes. And that apartment is, you know, right on a street. And I don't know, you know, maybe there's a 12 year old kid there too. That's kind of awake later. And I don't think so. I mean, I think they were all younger, but I was just thinking in what, what world would I ever do that? Well, I don't think we would. I mean, I just think that's just, Uh, you wouldn't. I, I don't. Yeah. Um, it, it, I just chalked it up to this extreme false sense of security and that everything's fine and co- sort of vacation mode and, and we're in a resort town and nothing sh- ever happens yeah, here. Why shouldn't we go have a lovely dinner with, you know, the wine flowing and not be bothered by the children? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but one of these nights, um, the mom goes for her rounds to go check on the kids and Madeline's gone. And there's an open window um, sort of leading out to where the street area is. And they were on the ground floor, correct? So and there was also the entrance. Their apartment was different from some of the others because the entrance to their back garden patio was on the street. Right. And I the would others just... weren't. The others were open to, I think like sort of like a little garden alleyway along mm-hmm. the length of the, the, the residence block. But it also, but I just I mean, think about my kid getting up and walking out in the middle of the street, you know? Yeah. And when we say street, it's like a cobblestone, sure. quiet street at night. There's no traffic, but I remember because they showed the gate over and over again. And I just thought, okay, I'm uncomfortable with the gate already. Right. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that this child's window is right on the street too, right. with no, screen or no, crazy. no. Um, so this is, this is kind of, you know, where it all starts. This, this child's missing, um, immediately, you know, police and other vacationers and village people are all doing searches for her. Um, but very quickly there are zero leads, zero answers. Well, and like you were talking about with the Lindbergh case, as soon as the alarm goes up that the child is missing, every one of those parents is going in and out of the room, oh, right. in and out of right. room, the apartment, the apartment, the street, the window, the apartment, the bedroom, the street, just probably like 20 different adults. And then the police come in and do the exact same thing. Yes. So yeah. that crime scene was completely contaminated, like useless. Right. Right. Um, so there's there's zero leads. You know the days are sort of ticking by. Then kind of similar to the the Lindbergh case, this sort of third party person kind of works his way in. There's there's a guy that lives there who's British, who also speaks Portuguese that decides to start being a translator from the police to the media. Right. Yeah. He. Just kind of offers his service. His story as a is, I mean, and that's what he does. I right. mean, that's what he, he his his job is there, and he felt horrible for this angelic little 
of blonde child, right. blonde haired, blue eyed child that disappeared. And suddenly nothing, no leads to go on. So they turn on him. Let's, uh, why is this guy, uh, yeah, what's your, what's your up deal? And what's going on with him? And so it's like, everyone's got their scent at him. And uh, then they put, they go over his phone records and they find out that there's a number of a web developer mm-hmm. and the web developer is a young Portuguese guy. No, I, I think he was like, wasn't he Russian or something? No, he was, he was Russian. You're right. He, and this is somebody who had, whose family had already been through hell and he had done everything he could to like get a new start in Portugal. And he was successful in building websites for people. And, Suddenly, they accuse him. The police, it's like Keystone Cops. The police are just running in every direction, throwing accusations, and they basically beat him. They, you know, they take all, confiscate all his computers. They don't find anything. They find something, I think, that was probably adult porn or something, but nothing skeevy. And, but they tried to blow that up into something. And then this other guy, you know, it's also the thing that something we don't, you know, there's a, we could do a whole episode on this, on how single men, mm-hmm. single guys are immediately looked at with suspicion. Well, why aren't you, you're in your mid thirties. Right. Why aren't you married? Why are you living with your mom? Why are you living with your mom? Why don't you have kids? You know, Unless there's gotta be something creeper. wrong because you don't fit this socio-cultural norm uh-huh. that supposedly is, I mean, that's Western culture right, right there. And you have a, um, a missed phone call to a web developer. Oh my God. You guys must be running a child porn ring. Right. <laughs> like well, crazy. I mean, the only thing about that that was weird was it was very late at night. I mean, it was a like the phone call was like I think eleven forty five yeah. at night, which I mean that's not completely in Europe. Not, that's in not Europe, late, right? <laughs> I mean, these parents are having dinner. But and- like we talked about in Amanda Knox with that jackass Mignini, right? Same thing here. We've got this small town, small town cop who suddenly becomes a celebrity and the Portuguese Magnini. Yeah. He's the Portuguese Magnini and he's just as messed up historically as Magnini was. He had gotten in trouble over and over again for, uh, abuse of power and just tons of stuff that should have just immediately, and you didn't find this out till later. I think it's like way later in the right. episodes, but right. yeah, it's it, kind of the same thing at first. You're like, Oh, okay. I'm listening to this guy. He sounds reasonable. Sounds like he knows what he's doing. This seasoned detective. And then it's like, God, one of these tiny little towns again, where just who knows what's been going on. <laughs> Um, and now it circles back around to the parents. Yeah. So that kind of loses steam with the third party person. And then it circles back to the parents and there's all of this talk again about the father being completely stoic and the voice and, um, you know, having these prepared statements for the media, which it was a media nightmare. They had to react to the media. Well, and the media, the the British tabloid media, oh, right. again, like like in the Amanda Knox case, the the and I'm sorry for like the shit that they published about the parents was unbelievable. I mean, they 
anything that was a supposition that they were part of a child sex ring, that they were part of this, that they were doing it for insurance money, that they were, you know, drug at, I mean, just anything. Yeah. yeah. That they were drugging their children while they went to dinner. Oh, that was the whole thing too. Cause they're they, doctors, right? Right. So, so they were given, yeah, but that was, there was no evidence to that effect. No. And then suddenly during the trial, they're putting the mom on the stand asking her, well, how much to, you know, assuming that she had done it. I mean, it was, really terrible. Yeah. But as soon as that, the, the documentary started to go that way and they started talking about the father's affect, I thought he is a goddamn surgeon, right? When is the last time you met a surgeon that had fantastic bedside manner and you felt super cozy and warm and comfortable with? That's not what they do. That's not what they do. And, and, and probably, probably we need them to be a little bit on the spectrum of like unemotional because they've got to make really tough decisions and that, that tough decisions based on their experience and the laws of probability. Sure. Sure, That's what surgeons do all the time. And that's, yeah, that's what you want. (laughs) Now, they also, what's interesting is the way it was presented. And I remember watching it and not having that reaction at all. I did not see them as stoic. I saw him as composed and incredibly sad and expressing severe depression in the way that most men do as irritability sure, and, and yeah. tightly suppressed anger. And then being poked at by these cops and the media. I mean, it was absolute, once again, an absolute circus, but now we saw a lot of his interviews and a lot of his tapes and this guy, what I think really tipped the scales was when the, the media frenzy and the falsehoods and the wild speculations pissed him off so much that the edge of his irritability got a little sharp and that worked against him very badly. So once again, like I was using those terms earlier, our affect sometimes is a completely accurate representation of our internal state. And sometimes it's an inaccurate or other expression of our internal state. Like the example I was saying, he might've been feeling overwhelmingly sad, but what it's being expressed at is tightly constricted anger with a steely gaze. And of Mm -hmm. course, someone's out there going, look, he's got the eyes of a killer. Right. Well, and just the, um, the phases of the trauma that they're going through, you know, especially when, so eventually the, the, um, investigators bring in these dogs to sniff for blood and to sniff for cadavers. That was fascinating. So there's a, it was fascinating. okay. So the one that, <laughs> and I'll never forget this now, cause I think it's so cool is that when a body, when a, 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 a a body dies when an individual dies, that there is a chemical process that starts that the beginning of that putrefication emits a chemical called cadaverine and the cadaverine has a very, it's, it's in it chemically distinct from all other chemicals and they have dogs that are so sensitive that they can tell Certainly they've got dogs that can smell blood, but they can also train dogs to know if a body, a dead body has been in that place or if an article of clothing or material that has been near a dead body is in that place. Yeah. I think the example they used is that a body could have been here or, you know, anywhere 40 years ago and that 
chemical would still be there. Yeah. Even in the ground. Yes. That was it. It was in the ground. I love all that stuff. Um, good dog. I know (laughs) those dogs are so cute. They're just doing their job. Um, but anyway, they, they bring these two dogs in and run them around the, um, apartment and each of them, both the, the blood sniffing one and the cadaver sniffing one, both hit somewhere, you know, places in the apartments And it's like from that moment on, I mean, you know, these documentaries are great at like keeping you on the edge that each, each episode you're like, eh, no, they didn't do it. And then like, oh shit, maybe I was wrong. They're telling a story. Yeah. So I think this was one of those episodes where I was like, oh, that doesn't look good. That does not look good. Um, but then I you know, the episode ends abruptly, of course, and then you have to wait for the next one. And But I got thinking, I'm like, this is an apartment that people are renting all year long. I mean, it taps into, like, of course there's been a dead body in every hotel room you've probably ever stayed in. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you have to kind of think it through a little bit, but it did look bad. But from from then on out... The investigators then turn it from a missing child case to a murder case. And so for the parents, no one's looking for your kid anymore. I mean, I that has to be almost more devastating. Right. Just that shift. That shift of like, not just, okay, yeah, they suspect us, but no one's out there looking for her. Um, and so that I found very, very sad and... When the investigation or just everything kind of shifted, you know, they then hire some media people to deal with the media and then get criticized for hiring media people. It's like, oh, what have you got to hide if you're hiring media people? I know this is a really it's a it's a a, an insidious pattern. Damned if you do, damned damned if you you don't. don't. Yeah, is the kind of the theme, but it. You know, they they go on. um, You know, they eventually made the really tough decision to go back home. Um, and then the years are just ticking, ticking by and they hire some different agencies and get fucked over by these oh my God. Uh, people just taking their oh money. Oh my God. The one, because in, 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 talking about a story, just taking a right hand turn into complete unexpected crazy town. There is, uh, an, a, like a supposedly a world famous private investigator firm in New York. And this guy is connected to everybody in the world, everybody in the U S government. He's in a fancy high rise, blah, blah, blah. Has all these pictures all over the place of him, you know, with SWAT teams and holding AKs and all this stuff. And you find out it's all bullshit. Yep. He was a complete con man. Oh my God. Had conned so many people, but what, I mean, and what had happened also as part of the story is a millionaire in the UK became fascinated with wanting he was so angry that the parents were treated so poorly in the media that he wanted to put money towards yeah. the investigation and he shelled out millions of dollars I know and it was just so heartbreaking to think that a good portion of that went to a fucking con man I know oh my god swindled needs to do an episode on that I think guy. he killed himself didn't he I think he ended think up he killing did. himself because yeah. he knew his number was up yeah. like he had conned so many people he was in trouble but yeah, you know what, 12 years later, Madeline still don't know what happened to her. Her parents eventually get cleared by the Portuguese government. Yeah, there was one, there was one, there were several things that were odd and out of the ordinary 
one really sort of one lead that they focused on for years and years, which was that one person had seen a man walking down the street in the vicinity of the apartment carrying a child. And they, I mean, I have to give them credit for exhausting that lead. They did artists renderings of it. They did hypnosis, trying to get the pattern of the clothing, everything. And what it ends up being eventually is that there was another parent at that time who had gone to the crash to retrieve his sleeping child and was walking back to his own place. And they, they cleared that. But there was a report that in the next resort city over that was on the outskirts of a larger town, there was a couple that were waiting in the middle of a deserted road, a well-dressed couple, middle of the night, waiting in the road. And as a car pulled up and the person stopped to ask if they were okay, the woman's question to him was, did you bring us the baby? Right. And they tried... I think they pursued that as much Ugh, as they could. I know. I mean, it's like, so there were other things that they were experimenting with that might've happened to Madeline that right. they're, you know, as sad as it is to, to say in parts of, uh, Eastern Europe, there's a big market for child sex trafficking. Sure. And she was quite a beautiful child, blonde hair, blue eyes. My thing that makes me really sad is that she has a, a, a striking birth defect in one eye. So these crystal blue eyes with one brownish green stripe. I mean, right. it's so identifying. So, I know. Like I there's know. no, there's no way. Like if anybody, if, if, I mean, I, I doubt that that would have served her very well because it's too identifying. Right. Sure. sure. I don't know. When I was, I was actually talking about this with that officer I was sitting next to, um, in the training last week. And we both, we both have daughters and we said, we probably would prefer her to be dead than spending, you know, 12 years in the sex trade. Oh, it's just, just to it's even think about awful. it. It's brutal. It's I just mean, brutal. It's, and one of those things, because you and I have, we've actually seen, the pictures and, yeah. and the evidence and the data on this We've phenomenon. Read about the pictures. Right. We're right. We're <laughs> we right about them. Them. No, no, I don't you know. We haven't seen them. But we know <laughs> that but the idea of, you know, the the taken movies right. when Liam Neeson is going through that horrible you know, warehouse of prostitution. Yep. That that's that's not that's not fiction. That's a real thing. Yeah. It it seems so hard to believe that that's happening. But Wow. It's a real yeah, thing. It is. So once again, going back to how they were treated, they were exonerated eventually. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is turned into a, a murder case and it's still open. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I hope the best for her wherever and whatever state she's in, yeah. you know, whether it's uh, physical or non-physical, right, right. but it, it was a, a brutal example of how parents, in an altered state of emotion. Well, no, even if they hadn't been in an altered state, if they had been wildly emotional, who know? we can't really predict what, how that would have been perceived. Mm-hmm. Oh, look how dramatic they are and right. look how over the top they are. So going back again to those concepts of affect versus 
what the actual internal state is. One of the things that, that I'm fascinated about this that I touched on earlier is my own personal experience in being in a courtroom when I was a young man witnessing a very, very significant trial in my hometown. And the idea of emotional expression was used by the defense, by the prosecution, and by the judge as as an example of what those individuals thought that the defendant or the defendant's family or the victim's family were feeling. And it really was unfair. And it was unfair to all the parties involved. And even, you know, we're big fans of the getting off podcast with Jessa and Nick. They have recently done an episode about how as attorneys, they are pissed off about it because there's nothing more infuriating for me now, especially with my years of clinical training and experience than to hear a judge or see a, 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 a judge wag their finger at somebody saying you sh- you're not showing any remorse or I don't understand this. Like, right. That Talk is... about their behavior during the crime all you want. Right. And you know, any, anything else that's evidence based or behavioral based, but God, I mean, come on. Yeah. It's very frustrating. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> oh, Sorry. Okay, for folks, for those of you who are not in Southern California at this time, we are so lucky that we had uh, huge rainstorms and we've got a huge snowpack that's melting slowly. So our drought is officially over, but oh my God, the allergies. Like, no one I, wants to hear about the fucking super bloom anymore, I but know, it's real. <laughs> it is real. But that's why both of us are sounding, our voices are more raspy than usual. Oh man. But yeah, interesting, uh, interesting phenomenon. And I gl- was really glad to hear Jessa and Nick have their take on it about how frustrating it is for them. Because I, I once again, like you're saying, focus on the behavior, look at what led up to it, and cut out the rest. Yeah. That being said, you're going to talk about a couple of other examples of that. Or should, oh, should I talk about? Okay, well, no. Okay, we'll come back to that. I'm going to remind you what you told me earlier you're going to talk about. Oh, yeah, I want to save that for the end. Okay. So there's a a couple of, well, there's several other examples that are fascinating to me. And one of them that comes out of the UK is um, uh, an attorney named Sally Clark. Uh, Back in 1999, she was convicted of the murder of her two infant sons. And it was that conviction was based on supposed expert witness and supporting evidence. And this guy, Ron Meadow, and I'm not even sure what his discipline is. I know they call him doctor, but I don't know if he's a medical doctor or forensic pathologist or whatever. Mm -hmm. But he had asserted that the odds of there being two unexplained infant deaths. Oh, they were killed? Together at the same time yeah. or at separate time? Okay. okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't know. That's I a, just uh, no. That's a good question because I, I ought to check it. But he said that the two unexplained infant deaths in one family were one in seventy-three million, Ooh. and that figure was what they used. Is like these are the stats. We're going to send her to, to prison, and. The UK Royal Statistical Society was like, no, no, no. This is. They made a complaint to the to the highest level of court, saying, we don't know where this guy's getting his numbers from because that's not correct at all. Now, also, this guy was sort of a professional expert witness, which right. you and I have mixed feelings about. Right. But he had made such these kind of. He other parents were convicted on him making the same statement oh, as well. God. So, um, so it must have been that they died at 
separate times. And so he's saying that the odds of two children dying in the same family at separate times is right. So it was, it was, yeah, it was shown later that, that once the other factors are factored in like, um, genetic, environmental, yeah. contextual, if they're taken in consideration that the, the real odds were actually much greater, you know, like the, that's, that's completely different that there was a significantly higher likelihood of two deaths happening as a chance of occurrence than he had, um, exhibited during the trial. So, so they later, and then they later found out that, um, there was a clear evidence that both kids got staph infections in their spinal fluid, which, you know, so that, I mean, not only what a horrific way to die, um, because so painful and they, she was exonerated. Um, but yeah, he, and he, uh, was, uh, got into a lot of trouble. Dr. Meadows got into a lot of trouble because he did three other high profile cases. And all I could think of when I was reading this is dude, you've got mommy issues yeah, big time going after these moms and not looking these. at the stuff. Yeah. Um, he was, um, he got a knighthood for his work in child protection. But lately it, you know, after all these, uh, wrong convictions, he, you know, they, pulled they back all these you? things. I, they denied you? What him. is that? I don't know. Do I think they, they chop your head off? They should take the sword and chop his head off. <laughs> Jesus. So, um, I think, uh, which is really sad, because I remember we talked about this in some other cases, especially like the Michael Peterson case with a, you know, a forensic, a supposed forensic expert mm-hmm. um, giving, you know, having such an influence. Uh, Dr. Meadow was involved in about 250 cases that resulted in conviction. So they went back and had to look at everything again because of his, you know, what would really be considered, um, serious misconduct. There's lots of experts out there. You don't need to go to the same one over and over. Seriously. I mean, it, come on. Yeah. Attorneys, courts. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, just running through a couple of other Australian case. Oh yeah. Lindy Chamberlain. Uh, thanks for the reminder. So Lindy Chamberlain is really famous. I mean, it was, unfortunately it was famous in the U S because of, uh, basically, uh, what was a meme at the time, a tagline, which was, you know, dingo ate my baby, which has been, was never said. Lindy never said that she's an Australian woman, um, that, um, this was a very, very famous case that took place in 1982. So Lindy Chamberlain, Oh, there's a very, uh, cry in the cries in the dark was a movie that was made about it with Meryl street. Meryl street got, um, won an Academy award for it. This woman who she and her husband, uh, went camping with their nine week old daughter, Azaria, and they were, um, camping at a very, very famous, well-known place in Australia called, uh, Uluru, right. um, or Ayers Rock. Yeah, the big rock. In the yeah, middle it's of the, the big rock. Outback. So now, once again, let me just put a pin in it for what we were talking about earlier in the Madeline McCann case of, okay, yes, you're within direct eyesight of all the apartments, but, you know, why would you leave your kids? Now, uh, you know, I grew up going camping right. and roughing it. I would not take a nine-week-old. Nine weeks. I mean, come on. You just don't want to get it dirty. I know, I mean, but you're Australians, trying to keep this baby alive. <laughs> I guess they're trying to like they're you know, it's Australia where everything's trying to kill you anyway, so they're yeah, trying to they're like, like keep eh. it. 
Yeah. I wish Deb was here to do her Australian accent. Who? Deb. Deb? Oh my God. Deb's so great. Deb's is great. But, uh, so what happened was in the middle of the night, uh, Lindy woke up and saw a dingo exiting the tent. A dingo is uh, a wild dog that are indigenous to, uh, Australia. And they're, they are really, they're feral dog-like, you know, it's like yeah. the strong like jaws, wild coyotes, wild coyotes used to living in really, really difficult, challenging environments, extreme temperatures. So these guys are, they're hunters. They yeah. know how to hunt and they're perfectly capable of picking up an infant. Um, but once again, this is an example of uh, accused of a defendant being judged on her presentation. She came from a very strict religious background. They were seventh day Adventists, uh, which in my experience of working with seventh day Adventists, there is another, there is a cultural, a religious cultural influence of not showing emotions or being very contained. Maybe that doesn't speak for all of them, but it, that's would be a virtue that would be appreciated. So on top of that, Lindy, had what we'd call sort of a severe look. She had a very, uh, very pale skin, very overly plucked, arched eyebrows, and a really severe haircut, like a very sort of severe, androgynous, banged haircut. So even for 1980, that was severe? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, she wasn't out, you know, at her, you know... (laughs) New Wave Club New or something. Wave. But okay. they were really quite, quite um, brutal to her on the stand. And she... Uh, so the, do they immediately like suspect that she's full of shit and killed her own child? Yeah. What? What yeah, are yeah. some and of the, the rumors that it, were it, spreading around? It was that she... It's like some weird sacrifice. Wasn't that one of the theories that... They went out there to sacrifice the baby. Thought I had heard that. Well, there are so weird things. So the prosecution had this theory that within this five to ten minute absence from the campfire, Lindy had gone back to her tent, did whatever was necessary to stop um, her other son, Aiden, from following her. She changed into tracksuit pants, took Azaria to her car, got a pair of scissors, cut Azaria's throat, and waited for Azaria to die, and then hid the body in a camera case in the car, cleaned up the blood on everything outside the camera case, removed the tracksuit pants, got some baked beans for her son from the car, returned to the tent, and then got back to the campfire without ever attracting the attention of ever ca- of, of campers. And just fed the family dinner. Yeah, exactly. So she just took this... Just had to get some beans. I'm going to take a break to go kill my daughter. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't make any sense. None of this. And I'm not even sure... I read was looking deeply, but I could not find a lot of what the sort of... You know, was there a conspiracy theory or what she was doing? I think they were just trying to portray her as, you know, as crazy. I thought, you know, and it fits with the time now that I think about it, and I don't know if this was going on in Australia. Satanic panic? Yeah, satanic panic, and that that was, um, you know, probably, if anything, more of a misunderstanding or not knowing about her religion. But I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, what was found is that um, 
when the the child's body was found that the the evidence i mean it was back and forth and back and forth is that they found tracks they got witnesses that were able to confirm that they could that there were noises that were known to be what a, a dingo makes when it's in hunting mode oh, okay. and you know that when the when the remains were found it was clear that an animal had been involved but mm. you know that the and of course an animal that's hunting is going to go through for the throat of yeah. whatever prey it's going for but the prosecution had to come up with this idea that she had you know taken a pair of scissors right to the child is just ridiculous wow. so um, new evidence emerged, I think, in 1986 when the Azaria's jacket was found. Um, oh, right. they, that, like the the police were saying, no, there is no jacket. There was all these confounding back and forth things, and they did find it partially buried um, near a dingo lair. Oh, you know, a, right. sort of like this area where mm-hmm. a, a a pack of these wild dogs would be. So she was um, really Lindy, who had already gone to prison, um, was released from prison, and she was finally in 1988. Um, she was uh, acquitted. So, and, but that wasn't it. Stop. There was a third inquest again. You know, they just kept going back and going back. And so finally in 2012, um, and by this time, Lindy and her, um, husband just kept pushing and pushing and pushing to make sure that all the evidence was there. And that, that by this time, without a doubt, with real experts coming in, they were able to confirm that it had been as a result of this animal attack. But once again, to the point of our presentation is this was another example of because of her odd presentation, they just pilloried her. Yeah. Didn't feel right. Didn't look right. Didn't look right. She didn't fit the mold of she wasn't grieving and she wasn't presenting the way she was expected to be. Right. Okay. So quickly, I just want to kind of like touch on a case that might fit controversially into this. Um, but why don't we apply this and kind of look at it with John and Patsy Ramsey? Phew. Cause I think there are some, it, it's eerily similar to the Lindbergh case a lot. Um, well, once true. I started researching that. Well, at least from the outside. Yeah. 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 Um, and I am not going to go through the John Benet Ramsey case. If you are an alien that just landed on our planet and doesn't know what it is. Sorry. <laughs> Go look it up. Yeah. You can come back and listen to the rest of this. But they were very much judged for their behavior after. And in lots of ways, not just their affect, but to touch on affect here again, John was described as very stoic, um, composed. I think I, I love that you use that for Madeline McCann's dad. Um, composed and put together not necessarily comforting his wife or near her much at all. She's over here being hysterical, too hysterical. Apparently you can't be, you know, again, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. And, you know, and even as you're talking about it, I'm having a reaction because there's so much stuff that continues to be revealed about, I mean, an interesting parallel to Madeline McCann and the Lindbergh case is the complete contamination of the crime scene. Yes. Complete contamination. Yes. But aside from that, yeah. you know, I, it is my belief from what I've watched that it was probably a horrific accident and that they did what they felt was appropriate 
for a very wealthy family and well-known that we're going to, we're going to draw our wagons close and we're just going to make this look like something else. But that being said, I don't have proof of that. They have not been convicted of that. So it's odd to be in this position of having your own really strong bias based on evidence that continues to emerge, but we're looking at how they present. Yeah. So if we didn't have all this, if we didn't know all this, we would probably be looking at John and Patsy in the same way of like, well, why are we judging them? Let's, let's look at evidence. Right. Um, so not only, you know, those behaviors and then them, um, not acting like a couple should be acting, you know, comforting each other, um, but lawyering up. So we've talked about like some of this, um, you know, either using the media or using attorneys and people get real suspicious about that real fast. And here's the thing. If you don't lawyer up, you're probably screwed. Well, no shit. At least we should all know that now. Yeah. That should be a myth that's gone. Yeah. But I, I would imagine that, you know, a self-made successful business executive who himself is a Navy pilot, you know, we're seeing some of the same themes of personality probably with like Charles Lindbergh, that he probably has attorneys for things and someone in his circle very quickly, if he didn't think of it, said, maybe you want to get an attorney on this. So, you know, these, these are, this isn't you and me who's like, Ooh, where do we find an attorney? <laughs> these are people that kind of have them at their disposal. Right. Um, and yes, immediately media, a small police department on Christmas morning that doesn't know what they're doing and friends and family all over this place again, already makes it now a circus. Um, but the strange sort of hijinks of it, again, similar to the Lindbergh case, um, this happened more, you know, a small period of time of, you know, a ransom note and the weirdness of the ransom note and then oh my God, that ransom note. finding the body and the, the, you know, the staged nature of it and, you know, all this craziness just, I, I think it overwhelms people and they're like, Oh, it can't be what it seems like. Um, and this is the whole time she's dead. Just like Charles Lindbergh baby was found to be, you know, dead for two months. That baby died that night. It, yeah. It's not that they went and buried him later. Um, but it, you have maybe some people with some personalities that this is just their personality coming out and this is how they're handling a real trauma. Right. Okay. So that goes to the idea. I think, I know we've touched on this before that there's, there's a very strong, uh, theory in psychology that all of us, when we are under extreme duress, will tend to exhibit in what in other situations would be perceived of as a personality disorder. That's not a bad thing. And it doesn't mean that you're diagnosed with a bad thing, or it means that your coping skills in extreme situations would be. So someone who is experiencing like a horrific loss of family might look like a sociopath, right? They might look as a non-reactive, non-emotional sociopath or schizotypal person because basically their mental processes are scrambled. And that's the defense 
paradigm that exhibits at that time. And by the same token, you know, we can say like Patsy was all over the place and she was so dramatic, but you know, death of her child, let's just say that we didn't know any of this other stuff that we now know that presentation, not your child's body has been found in your basement and it's been brutally garroted and you know, yeah. And you've lived this sort of, you know, privileged life and you, you know, you're well taken care of this weird feigned fairy tale, weird life. I would expect someone to be like dramatic because that's kind of who you are. You're a big personality. They did video Christmas cards that they sent out every year. Right. Right. For the nineties. That's pretty, you know, it's not like you just send an email. And by the way, every (laughs) inch of that house was decorated to like, like, yeah. It's like you were in FAO Schwartz at Christmas time, <laughs> which doesn't even exist anymore. No, unfortunately. But, you know, I also thought what a parallel to the Madeline McCann case, you know, when I'm talking about how they shifted it from not a, a missing case anymore, but a murder case, because once Boulder PD was like, ooh, our quiet little nice rich college town doesn't need this attention, they said on the news, there is not a murderer or a predator on the loose. So now if you're these parents, guess what? No one's looking for a right. murderer. Right. So it, that now has been shut down. So there, it's just so these three cases, how like weird and intertwined and similar they are in different ways. And I wish that it was a, I, I wish that these three were really rare occurrences. But if you, once again, without going down a rabbit hole on, on this subject, but in doing the research for it, you realize that there are, even if we're talking about not about disappearance or death of a child, that the number of parents falsely accused of abusing their children is astronomical. Right. I mean, it's really, really high. Horrifying. And, you know, once again, I'm not going to go too far down that, but the idea, like in contentious divorces, it's very, very high. And those kind of, those kind of accusations can ruin people's lives. You know, which is really ridiculous. Yeah. But um, there are some very big ones that I wanted to touch on before Mm -hmm. we end because I I found these fascinating. One, this is, and this is a, this is a lifetime movie in itself. There was James Richardson, an African American uh, gentleman, in 1967. Lived in Arcadia, Florida with his wife, Annie Mae. They had seven children aged uh, from age two to age eight. And three of the children were from Annie Mae's previous marriage. And James had fathered uh, the rest of the kids. And October 25th, James and Annie Mae went to work. And they left their children in care of a neighbor named Betsy Reese. And then the next day, all seven children became really, really ill, and each of them would be dead by the following morning. Oh, my God. Uh, horrible. Just horrible. The idea of, I mean, the idea of any child dying, but seven, oh. I mean, that's ridiculous. So the doctors perform autopsies, and they it's clear that there was poison in the food. And um, Reese, the babysitter, said, well, you know, I... I all I know is there's like there's a shed back there that he has that directs the police to the shed. And, of course, there's this deadly, um, really, really toxic insecticide that was sold at the time called Parathion or Parathion. And it's not even sold anymore. It's hmm. like DDT. It's so bad. And um, now, you know, of course, police are trying to do their work and they find that he had insurance policies on all his kids. Well, that's what you did. 
that's what you did at that time. And, you know, and a lot of parents, especially, I mean, if you have that many children, finances are a big issue, you know, that's what you do. So they made it suspicious and he was charged with all their murders. And, um, there were jailhouse informants that were saying that he had confessed the crime. He was good. He was sentenced to death. Um, they were lucky that they get, were able to commute it to 25 years. And now fast forward years in 1989, the defense team came back and they found out that like one of the, one of the jailhouse informants was like, yeah, I was lying, you know? And then they find out like, here's 15 years later that those supposed purchased life insurance policies, they were never purchased. They were just discussed with an agent. So incorrect information gets in. And so by this time that elderly neighbor, that sweet Betsy Reese, she's in a nursing home and she's a neighbor or she's the babysitter. She was the neighbor who was the babysitter. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And, uh, on her deathbed, she con- uh, confessed to the employees that she had poisoned the kids. What the fuck? And um, why? Well, they said that she was on parole <laughs> at the time for the fatal shooting of her second husband, and earlier her first husband had died under like weird circumstances after eating food that she had made for him. And then her third husband had left her for one of James's cousins. So, I mean, direct. So it could have been anything. It could have been anything. <laughs> oh my God. Betsy was not. Use care.com to find your yeah, babysitters. Not exactly. Oh God, I wouldn't do that. No, I would never. Oh my God. No. I would never leave my child Absolutely with anyone not. I didn't know. <laughs> so, he was exonerated um, and released from prison, but uh, I think she she was never charged. So well, but uh, oh, the mom was never charged. The mom, well, the mom, what they don't say anything about the mom, but they. Um, well, she's on her deathbed, so of course they didn't. That's it. Yeah, her. the um, the the babysitter. Wow. There was another one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in nineteen ninety four. Michelle Murphy. She was seventeen year old, seventeen years old, and she had a three month old son, Travis, and she wakes up in the middle of the night. And the kid has been stabbed to death on the floor. And uh, the police had been called by a 14-year-old neighbor named um, William Lee, who said to the police that he saw Michelle getting into a violent argument with Travis's dad. Um, Travis's little boy, his biological father, so the baby daddy. And police went to the apartment. They didn't see any signs of the scene at that time. They came back and they looked through the window and they see a, a distraught, hysterical, and bloody Michelle standing over Travis's body. So 90 minutes have gone by. Anyway, she never called 911 to report it. I, you know, I question that, except that she's 17 years old. She's shot. You're walking in the middle of the night. You wake up. Is this real? You know, there could have, she could have been in shock. Um, but then later they found out that there was no blood on her. It was just on the clothing. Like she had, like, you know, she had leaned over the child or something, but there was no, um, no evidence. And Lee, the kid next door, he was testifying against her. and He was the witness. He never called 911. He called the police, but he didn't call 911. Uh Interestingly enough. And he actually, he ended up dying like, during the trial by auto erotic asphyxiation. So I think, um, I think his kid was probably, I mean, he was probably a pretty messed up kid and probably, and it looks like he was responsible for it because they found that none of the blood there was her blood. Um, but she was in prison for nine years. So that's, that's two examples. There's another guy, David Gavitt, 
uh, went to prison for years for setting his house on fire. The evidence absolutely did not show it. He was, you know, accused of being this monster that had set the house on fire and tried to play hero. One of the ones that was very famous going back to that expert, uh, Dr. Meadow, who screwed things up was a, an, an, an English woman of Indian descent. Her name was Trupti Patel. And in 1997, she gave birth to a son named Amar and he died really soon after he was born. And then two years later, she gave birth to another son and he died without explanation 15 days later. And then she had a newborn daughter in 2001 and she only died um, she died when she was 22 year, 22 days old and um, I think there was broken ribs and one of them because she, you know they said that you were beating your child and then they later realized that she was trying to resuscitate her child right and they brought in pediatrician Dr. Meadow because he had done all these things and he oh he was a pediatrician pediatrician yeah and then later they found out they did a, a full workup on Trupti this woman and she had a genetic um, she had a genetic marker that would would later be shown to show a huge impact on kids who uh, would have SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. So, you know, it was... Like, how could you not think that is the other option? Either she's killing them Occam's or... Occam's razor. There's something... Right? Like, let's let's test for it, genetic. right? My and God. also, it was like the one thing that they had left out for a long time was that her maternal grandmother lost five of her 12 children oh, during infancy. God. Come on. Just so, a little digging, people. You know, this was... Um, she was acquitted of all charges... Thank God. But, and there's, there's probably, I found like about 15 other examples that were this, this significant of how, just how easy it is to go to the parents. I don't think that's a, well, and the common denominator among, you know, the others that we've already talked about is really when the cops say that they start to feel the pressure to solve the case, you know, whether because it's a resort town or a rich town or it's a celebrity or whatever, but when they start feeling pressure, oh, well, back to the statistics, yeah. you know, most people are murdered by people that they know. And definitely the majority of children are murdered by their parents or someone in the family. Right. So, so they they're looking, they're that. looking on the, they're falling back on oh, that paradigm and, and that statistical rel- relevance or probability. I, I, I just, it also makes me think of the times that I've in private practice or when I was a law enforcement psych, you know, you've been on those scenes and when a a cop is experiencing an unbelievable loss and a cop is supposed to be together all the time. So we'll be there at the scene and the cop is either in shock or they're pulling it together. But let me tell you, I've been in the the room one-on-one or been in the room with the families too. And that's when you see the real devastation. You see the just utter falling apart. And part of it is that you and I are trained to look at those things. You and I, whether you're, we're trained to do it, I mean, you and I are not trained to specifically hone in on what Gottman, uh, Dr. John Gottman is a, a marriage and family specialist. He's a psychologist himself, but his whole study is on um, the interpersonal react- interactions between married couples. And it's fascinating stuff and for another uh, podcast. But he, his whole science is on micro expressions. So these are expressions that are traveling so fast across someone's face that they're less than a second. And yet 
you are sitting across from this person and you may not know what you've just witnessed, but your brain picks up on that micro expression and you interpret it. You may not know that you've seen it. Right. And then, but we sitting in these rooms for thousands of hours, we catch those things a lot quicker in a courtroom in this huge sort of theatrical environment. How's anybody going to catch that? No, you can't. And when somebody's exhausted and they've been sitting, staring at a legal pad for, for three months and they're accused of, you know, maybe their children have died, but you've heard about it every single day. There's no adrenaline left in your system to work out a tear. Your your attorney's like, don't do anything. Right. Be stoic. Be, don't show any emotion. Man. Hard stuff. I know. I was going to say, hey, well, let's talk about Casey Anthony, but I don't want to talk about Casey Anthony. (laughs) Because wasn't she completely judged for her behavior and was acquitted? I'm just saying, food for thought for everyone to take after uh, this. We don't need to dive into it. We've gone too long. Now we're complicating the issue. But, wow, she. I mean, I know everything's been done on her. But, you know, I think... Even going back to the Nancy Grace thing, that that's an example of someone interpreting something they know nothing about, and you muddied the waters. Yeah. I think that that she and several of her other pundits really make these cases harder. You know, and I remember even I can't remember who it was on Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace had another accused mom uh, killer, and she just grilled her, grilled her, grilled her about her. I don't understand how you're acting and you did this, you did this and the, the, the mom killed herself. Oh I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if she was ever charged at posthumously with, or oh, really? if she was convicted posthumously with the crime. Huh. Anyway, look that up. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, if you are in Southern California on the 19th, May 19th, we're going to be at Pasadena yeah. Lit Fest. That's right. We are. So please come out. We are doing a panel on true crime. We'll be there with some authors and some other podcasters. And it's at 430 at the Pasadena Playhouse. Uh, I believe it's called the Friends Center. Uh, but it's the same location, Pasadena Playhouse, if you look up that address. But it's free events all weekend. Everything is free. They want you to save your money to buy books, of course. Exactly. But there's some awesome panels. They have tons of panels and discussions going on. Um, check out just, you know, their website or Instagram. It's litfestpasadena.org. And then we are also gearing up for July is going to be here before we I know, know it's it. coming so fast. So we will be in Chicago doing the first ever true crime podcast festival. I just got word there's like 400 people registered. What? Yes. Um, and we'll be doing a live show with the getting off podcast. I think it's going to, I think this particular podcast, this festival is going to take off. I think it's going to double or triple by next year. I'm really agreed. Agreed. Um, Um, one thing I wanted to ask you folks, if you can, um, we Shiloh and I did something recently that we were advised to do by a great team is that we're still with Squarespace. We love Squarespace, but we've added another aspect to our podcast production. It's called Simplecast. And Simplecast does a really great thing for us is in that 
not only does it show us how many subscribers we have, but it also shows us how many downloads we have. And the downloads are important, not because Shiloh and I are in this for money. We're not in this for money. We're in this because we love it and we got day jobs and neither of us is going anywhere in our day job. That's why we don't have a Patreon. We don't want to suck money out of anybody for this. We want to keep it this way. However, knowing the accurate number of downloads for our podcast helps us in the long run with being able to go to these big events and being known as a presence for the expertise we bring and the entertainment we bring to you. So I'm going to ask you a favor, and I know it's a drag, but (laughs) if you're just tooling around on your podcast app, and you're only listening to a couple of our episodes. And thank you for the ratings. We've got great ratings. Can you download a couple of the past episodes, even if you listen to them? In fact, if you have listened to them, then you don't have to feel guilty about doing it. Right. Just download them. You don't have to listen to them. But that would give us a more accurate idea of who all is downloading for our sure. audio. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. You know, I don't know why. I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> I'm going to go on a <laughs> weird rant about technology that I don't understand. Um, but yeah, other than that, check us out on social media um, LA Not So Pod on Twitter and LA Not So Podcast on um, Instagram. And of course, LA Not So Confidential on Facebook. We're going to be having another viewer question episode probably oh, yes. episode after next. Okay. So. I have so many ideas for new episodes. I know, it, we, it, but we still love hearing your ideas. Yes. And and we also, if there are direct questions that we want to expound on or that you want us to expound on, we're more than happy to do that. It'll be, be totally great. fun. Okay, All sounds right. good. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, folks. Bye bye.